Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the people who are here to hear your word. Give us ears to hear it and um, give us hearts to obey. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Be seated. How How does somebody come to know the truth about God? How do we grow in the truth about God? People today, a common approach in many circles is to say you need to look within. You need to look at the self. And there, if you look deeply enough, you will find God. You will find the inner light. You will find the spark of the divine. And uh, that approach belongs to a category called New Age Spirituality. Still current in our culture today. There's an influential New Age book, uh, which I came across recently, which instructs students, I'm quoting here, in the discovery of their own inner guidance, in the revelation of a spiritual voice within. Look to yourself to find God. And then there are others who would say, you need to study the various religions and explore them And then you can kind of pick and choose whatever fits you. Blend it all together and and it's DIY religion. Do it yourself religion. Now, there's obviously a problem with this spirituality that looks to the self. And the obvious problem is this. If my version of God is different from your version of God. Then which one is true? How can we know which is true? These spiritualities of the self undermine the search for truth, which is greater than the self. Christianity is different. We don't look to ourselves to find God. Now, we look to ourselves to discover our need for God. But we don't look to ourselves to find God. God finds us. The good news is God finds us. God comes to us. God reveals himself to us out of his goodness, his grace and mercy. In our gospel reading, the risen Jesus reveals himself to the disciples. That word comes up a couple of times, three times actually, in this text. It bookends the story of this miraculous catch of fish. The truth that Jesus revealed himself. Verse 1. After this, after the second time Jesus revealed himself as risen to the disciples, it says, after that... Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And here is the word again. He revealed himself in this way. And then the very end, the summary statement of this story, verse 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. The God of Christianity is a God of revelation. The disciples could not find the risen Christ on their own, through their own efforts. They're not going to find Jesus by going through the streets of Jerusalem or wandering the hills of Galilee. No, they have to wait 
for him to come. And that's what they're doing there in Galilee by the Sea of Tiberias. They're waiting. The reason they have to wait for Jesus to come to them is they do not have access to where he is. He is coming to them from a realm of existence beyond themselves. They don't have access to this realm. It is a supernatural realm. It's something outside of their experience. So it's a realm beyond death. This is the risen Christ who was once dead and now is alive. And he's coming to them in a body that has been raised. A glorified body that has been raised to new and unending life. And so this is something they've never encountered before. A glorified, resurrected body. Now, you might say, what about Lazarus? Well, Lazarus was resuscitated in a sense. He was not resurrected. Presumably, Lazarus grew old and he died of natural causes. He was raised to old life. It was a great miracle, no doubt about it, but it wasn't a resurrection. Jesus is encountering them, coming to them in his resurrected body. And this is something they've never experienced before. That's why I think so often in these stories of Jesus' encounter with his disciples after he was raised, they don't recognize him right away. Um, think of Mary Magdalene. She didn't recognize Jesus at the tomb. Think of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He's walking with them, and they don't recognize him until he breaks bread with them. Then their eyes were opened. And even here we see that the disciples did not know it was Jesus as he's calling to them from the shore. And even while he's with them and he's sharing this meal with them, it says no one will ask the question, is it you? They knew it was Jesus, but it was almost as if it's like, is it really you, Jesus? They wanted to ask this. They were having a hard time processing, understandably so. The risen body of Christ is, of course, the same body that they knew. This is the same body of Jesus of Nazareth. He still bears the scars of crucifixion, but his body now has a different quality. He's coming to them from another realm. He comes to them from outside of their experience. And so he has to take the initiative. They can't find him. He has to come to them and reveal himself. And friends, this is how we come to know the truth of God through Christ. This is how we come to know the risen Christ today. This is how we grow in the truth of Christ. It is by responding to the revelation of Jesus. The revelation of Christ. And today, that comes to us in the written testimony of those who encountered Jesus alive. And so in this chapter, or just before this chapter, rather, John writes these verses. Chapter 21 is sort of the epilogue to the book of John. And to introduce that, to kind of sum up the gospel, and then as a bridge to this chapter 21, John writes this. He says, Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. These encounters with Christ, the historical Christ, the risen Christ, 
the miracles that he performed, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So these things are written for us, not just as interesting facts to think about or to analyze or to collect as data, but John is saying those of us who encountered the risen Christ found in him the life of God, the eternal life of God, a life that's stronger than death, and we want you to have that life too. That's why we're writing this. They were witnesses of the revelation. God, in his mercy, revealed himself to them, and then God led them to write this down and preserve the writings for us today so that we might know the truth of Jesus so that we might have this life. Aren't you thankful that God has done this work for us so that we don't have to be searching here and there, but the revelation has been given to us and preserved for us so we can respond and know the life of God through Christ. And so we are called to respond to this revelation in trust and we're called to Point people to this revelation. We are not making things up as we go along here as Christians. The priority is always to point people to Jesus where God has revealed himself. That is fundamental to who we are as Christians and who we are as a church. We always must point people back to Jesus and this revelation so that they may know the life of God as well. This week I heard the testimony... I. Um, for some reason had never heard the testimony of John Stott, how he came to faith. I heard about and read, and of course, and listened to sermons by John Stott, the great Anglican preacher in London and great writer. Uh, someone said a few years ago that if evangelicalism has a pope, it's John Stott. He speaks with great authority. He has global influence. He's passed away now, but in um, his later years, he gave an interview, which I saw this week talking about how he came to faith. And he said, you know, I was raised in a church um, where I, I was never challenged to respond to Jesus. And uh, we went to church dutifully, he said. I said my prayers as a child growing up, but it didn't mean anything to me at all. And then as he got older, into his later teenage years, about age 17, he said, I knew I was searching for something. I was a searching soul. I knew that there was more to life, but I didn't know where to find it. And then he heard a preacher who challenged him to respond to Jesus, to respond to this revelation of God in Christ. And the preacher kept urging through the sermon, what will you do with Jesus? And John Stott said, I didn't think I had to do anything with Jesus. He just was a cultural figure. But. That challenge, the challenge of Christ, um, was set before him. He was a searching soul. And he began to think and pray about this. And he said on February the 13th, 1938, he knelt beside his bed, confessed that Christ was Lord, and confessed to Christ that he had made a mess of his life and asked forgiveness and asked Christ to come in. He said there was no uh, flashes of light or sounds of thunder. But he said the next day, and this is what caught my attention, he said the next day 
I was aware that something was different. Jesus had been on the outside, and now he was on the inside. The life of Christ had come into him. The life of God as he responded to the revelation of Jesus. This is what we are about. We have been given this revelation as a church. We are called to respond to this, to grow in this, to know Him more and more, and to share this with others. We need the revelation of the risen Christ, and we need to share that revelation with others. And we need the provision of the risen Christ as well. And that's what God gave these disciples. Christ provided for them through this miraculous catch of fish. Now, Jesus comes onto the scene and he asks them a question, which is a question which we'd normally ask people when we're walking by a lake or a pond and we see somebody fishing. We ask them or we want to ask them, how's it going? Have you caught anything? And usually my answer is the same answer that the disciples gave. No, you know, I got a few bites, but no. Um, And so Jesus says children and some commentators say this had a connotation of of calling them boys or even guys today. Uh, We don't know exactly what the connotation was, but maybe it sounded like, hey, guys, have you caught anything? And uh, embarrassingly, they have to answer no, because some of them are professional fishermen. This is what they do for a living. And somebody pointed out in the Gospels, every time Jesus catches them fishing, they never have any luck until he helps them out. God has a way of teaching us humility and dependence upon him. The other day, uh, Josie quoted a Bible verse a couple of days ago. I said, that's not how that verse goes. You're messing up a word. You're mangling a word. I'm the professional here. You know, I'm the professional student of Scripture And uh, you got that wrong, honey. And she said, no, I'm pretty sure I got that right. And I was this close to making a bet with her, which I don't normally do. But I decided I better check myself. She was right. (laughs) I was wrong. So humbling. Humbling experiences the Lord lets lets us go through. And that's what's happening here. The disciples never catch a fish in the gospel stories without Jesus' help. And he gives them some fishing advice. Well, it's more than advice. It's an authoritative command. He says, cast your net on the right side of the boat and then you will find some fish. Not you might have better luck on that side, but here is the Lord of creation saying you will find fish if you obey my command. So they catch so many fish that they're not able to haul it in. And then the beloved disciple, that is John, he says to Peter, that's Jesus, that is the Lord. And uh, they know that Jesus has done this before. And Peter plunges into the water and uh, bounds towards the shore, towards Jesus. And when they get on the land, they see that Jesus has prepared a fire and a meal for them, a meal of fish and bread. I love the details of this story. It, It has the mark of history because it is historical. And um, it says, he came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, the risen Christ feeds them. He provides for them. 
This is the second time in the Gospels we see in this Gospel where Jesus feeds people by the Sea of Tiberias with bread and fish. There's a theme here that John wants us to pick up. Jesus, the abundant provider. He fed, in John 6, the crowd of 5,000 with five barley loaves and two fish by the Sea of Tiberias. And here he's doing it again. Providing miraculously. Providing abundantly. The lesson here is this, that Jesus is going to provide what they need. Jesus is going to provide what they cannot gain through their own ingenuity and strength and experience. They did not catch any fish. They were going to go away empty and hungry until the risen Christ came on the scene with his power and presence to provide. And when he did, he provided abundantly 153 large fish. All sorts of speculation. Is this a symbolic number here? I mean, the commentators just go on and on arguing with each other. What does this number mean? And there's mathematical formulas. I spent some time this week tracing this down, and I came to the conclusion the safest answer is he says 153 because it was 153. (laughs) And it was large fish. And they were into fishing, and that was quite dramatic. So maybe there is symbolism, but we don't know for sure. But the Lord is the abundant provider. And that's a lesson the disciples needed to learn time and time again. It's a lesson we need to learn time and time again. It's a lesson that's just strewn throughout this gospel. Jesus saying to his disciples, you need to rely on me. (laughs) I am the vine You are the branches. Apart from me, you can't do anything. You can't bear fruit, John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you stay connected to me, if my word abides in you and you obey my word, we're going to have this relationship where my power and my life can flow into you and through you and you will be fruitful for the kingdom of God. But just remember, you need me. You need my provision. You need my presence. You need my power. He feeds them. And then he tells Peter later on, just after this, feed my sheep. I fed you. Now you feed others. I provide for you. Now you provide for others. That is the pattern. That is the pattern of discipleship. He gives grace so that we can be grace-filled and give that to others. He gives love so that we can give that to others. He gives wisdom so we can give that to others. He gives us so that we can give out to others. This is the pattern of discipleship, of life with Christ. And because He's alive, He is still doing that work in our lives today as we turn to Him. So what do you need from Christ? What do you need the risen Christ to provide you with to nourish you? We're called to share Christ with others and we can only do that effectively through His power and His provision and His presence. We're called to love others in our family and our friends in the church. We know we ought to love. We know how we ought to love. We see it in Scripture. But we cannot do this if God's love is not being poured into us through Christ. He's got to feed us so that we can give that out. We're called to walk in faith in difficult times. 
in times of temptation, in times of struggle and stress and doubt. How do we walk this life of faith? We need Christ. We need His presence, His power, His Word. He is the vine. We're the branches. He's the provider. We're the recipients. The risen Christ has that available to us as we come to Him in prayer. As we seek His Word to know it, to understand it, to store it in our hearts. As we worship together. What we're doing here this morning, the risen Christ is here to feed us. As we come to the table, the risen Christ is here to feed us, to assure us of His presence and goodness. And so, brothers and sisters, so much of this world is about the self, looking to the self, celebrating the self. But Christianity is about looking to Christ. He reveals God and He provides what we need as we look to Him. Amen.